Thank you everyone for joining us today on our discussion about diversity. And today we're going to focus our discussion really on diversity within investments. We have been seeing this evolution of more diverse managers being added to institutional portfolios, more institutional investors just wanting to learn more about the diverse manager landscape. And it's great because these decisions are not just being driven by societal benefits, but really by economic return first benefits. My name is Amy Ridge, and I lead diverse manager research within private markets here at Mercer. So I'm seeing firsthand the swell of investors adding diversity to their portfolios. And something interesting is that the desire is coming from all different levels of an organization. We're seeing discussions at the board level from donors of endowments and foundations, CIOs, and investment staffs. But it's also very apparent that you know investors are really at different stages of their DEI journey, hence the name of today's podcast, Curiosity Versus Conviction. We have the curiosity stage. Some are at that stage, and they want to know more. They know they want to do something, but they're trying to figure out where to start, who's in the market. Then we have the conviction side, the ones that are already actively investing and partnering with great diverse managers, and all the gray area in between those two metrics. So in our discussion today, we will cover many topics, and I am very excited to be joined by two people who could honestly just not even be more perfect in having this discussion with. We have Raylan Lambert. She is Mercer's global head of alternatives and has led so many different initiatives here at Mercer, including the Leap Continuum. This is Mercer's dedicated initiative that really harnesses all of Mercer's diverse manager research that now spans over a decade. And we have Bob Green. He is the current president and CEO of the National Association of Investment Companies, or as many of us in the industry know them, NAIC. This is the largest network of diverse-owned private equity firms and hedge funds. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, I would first love to hear from Bob, if you could tell us a little more about your background. Sure. Thank you, Amy. Uh, and thank you to uh, the Mercer uh, team for having me today. It's an honor to be with you to talk about uh, uh, diversity. Uh, so my background, I've had an opportunity to sit on really all three sides of the table. Uh, at NAIC, I'm an industry advocate. Uh, we are principally concerned with helping diverse managers get more capital. I've also been a general partner. Uh, I worked in the venture capital industry at a firm called Syncom Venture Partners, the oldest African-American venture firm in the country, and have also been a uh, capital allocator. I uh, served for almost 10 years as a trustee uh, and ultimately chairman of the board for the Virginia Retirement System. So I've had to deal with and tackle the topic of diversity from three perspectives and uh, look forward to sharing today. Thanks, Bob. And Raylan, I know that you have held multiple positions as well. So please tell us more about yourself. Well, Bob, first, I just want to say I'm looking forward, given that I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and you mentioned the Virginia Retirement System and your base there. I look forward to catching up. Uh, when schedules permit in person. But, you know, I grew up in a diverse household in Virginia. And, you know, I've been in the financial services industry for 23 years. 17 of that have been in private markets. And at Mercer today, as you mentioned, Amy, I lead our global platform of what will be more than 240 
dedicated professionals globally. Um, and you know, my, my focus is really on activating our full potential as a platform, as a team, by engaging with our colleagues, our clients, all that we bring to bear to co-develop solutions. You know, it's, we, I really like to think of it as preempting the challenges that our clients might face today. And you look at the amount that alternatives allocations are growing. I mean, it's in the double digits, 17 trillion of AUM is expected by 2025. That's huge. And it's only going to sustain. So this, I think part of it is thinking about how can we position ourselves to be scalable yet on demand, nimble, quick. You know, I, you probably will get this through my intonation, but I'm passionate. I'm a passionate leader. Um, and I seek to radiate this uh, throughout our organization. And a part, a big part of that is innovation. And so one of the misnomers that, I, that I've heard just, you know, being at Mercer is you're big, you don't innovate, you're not as nimble, I, in my experience, that is absolutely not the case. And you mentioned LEAP, and that is a huge testament to the innovation that we bring. We've brought it quickly. We've brought it deftly. And if there's time during this conversation to share more about that, I'd lo absolutely love to. Great. Thanks, Raylan. And that is exciting to hear the numbers that you're stating. There's so much money in the market, yet such a small amount is going to diverse managers. So I can't wait to see... Hopefully we get beyond the one to 3% that we see in the market today. Um, really take advantage of that growth. Something I thought would be interesting as we dive into this discussion a little more is that I hear it all the time in, you know, in leading diverse manager research is people say, oh, well, it's riskier. It just doesn't, it feels like I don't know if I want to go down that route just yet. You know, give me a call when you're established and on a fund three or four. And there's still this thought that you're just, oh, am I going to take a chance? Am I going to take a risk? And what I find fascinating is that there's some great stories about taking a chance on somebody. And so, Bob, I know that there's probably somebody that has taken a chance on you before, before you became all that you are today. I would be interested if there's any story that you have around that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's a very relevant point. Uh, in my own career, I, I thought I was at a very significant and prominent point in my career, having been at you know companies like AT and T and Arthur Anderson and um, all of this prior to my experience within private equity. And at one point in my career, um, working for Arthur Anderson. The uh, head of the uh, private equity practice within Anderson uh, tapped me to come work for his group. And it wasn't something that what, I didn't apply for the position. It wasn't something that I sought out. But he really wanted to get someone on the team that could talk to clients from an executive perspective, someone that had deeper uh, operating experience than many of the consultants that were doing transaction advisory work on his team. Ultimately, that individual whose name is Rich Jenneret, I'm still close with him today, uh, he took a chance on me. Uh, he gave me an opportunity. And that moment, from that moment to today, has literally been 20 years. And uh, if he had not done that, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to uh, be chairman of my state's pension plan, a hundred today, a hundred billion dollar pension plan. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to work on a number of deals with our client, the Carlisle Group. Uh, and I wouldn't have had the chance to uh, to serve as CEO of NAIC 
which today has 130 members and 250 billion in assets and is really at the forefront of pushing for increased utilization of uh, ethnic minorities and women. So, um, yeah, it does start, Amy, with taking a chance. And and I'm really glad that uh, someone took a chance on me. And I think that's so important, especially as you're launching a fund or a firm is the ability to just talk to people to tell your story. And so I think that that's great that that was one of the things that someone saw early in you. Raylan, how about you? Who's taken a chance on you in life? Well, it's interesting just reflecting on Bob's remarks. I mean, I think when anybody takes a chance on anybody, there has to be a spark, right? Like there's something that compels you that's beyond just the numbers on the page or the resume credentials. There's some sort of spark that uh, spurs you to go from curiosity to conviction. And I've definitely had a couple of instances. I had a securitist route um, in college. My game plan did not play out as I had planned. I ended up being a French major, which my husband likes to joke, what the heck do you do with a French major? So no offense to any of you out there that are listening that might have been French majors like myself. But the reality is, is one of my professors, Karen Bonding, um, took a huge chance on me. And I happened to graduate in the late 90s. It was a good year to graduate. Got She recommended me for an interview at Goldman Sachs. I didn't even know really how to use a computer. I typed my college applications out um, back in the day. And uh, I, I'll never forget the, the final interview question I had was, why should we hire you? And without thinking, I blurted out, because you'd be a fool not to. And at that moment, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is my demise. It's over. But clearly, I, I must have done okay because I got the job. So, again, their curiosity, I made them truly convicted to hire me. Um, and so that was, you know, a really early formative moment of the, the importance of mentors, of sponsors, of people that see your spark that you may not see in yourself. And similarly, you know, when I started at predecessor firms before I became the global leader of alternatives, the prior founder, he also took a chance on me and encouraged me to throw my name in the hat, which I never would have contemplated had he not nudged me a little bit. And, you know, here I am today. And, you know, it's it's about believing in your spark, but also um, others recognizing your potential. That's all so true. And it, it is a great story, a French major whose first job was at Goldman Sachs. So that's awesome. So I want to start off this discussion today with a question that we get a lot. It is, okay, how does DEI actually fit into ESG? You know, ESG is something a lot of us have been talking about, have programs around. And I know that there's investors out there that are wondering, you know, do I put diverse managers into an ESG impact portfolio? Should it be just part of my main private markets portfolio? Um, you know, so Bob, as you have been an allocator, an investor, and now, you know, hold many hats, what do you see investors doing in, in adding diversity to their portfolios? And do you have any um, ideas and best practices on it? Yeah, you know, it uh, it, it really is um, dependent on the organization, right? Um, organizations have different cultures. They have different governance models. They have, you know, even different assumed rates of return. Um, and I find that there is no one size that fits all. 
But to really understand diversity, diversity should not be viewed as some foreign, strange thing that we now have to go do. Diversity is about all of us, right? And what could be more natural than investing than taking something that is really about all of us and leveraging it to drive greater performance? I'm really fond of an axiom, and I've sort of blown the the original uh, sourcing on it, but uh, I'm really fond of the notion that um, talent is widely dispersed and opportunity is narrowly kept. And I think that's really the key around diversity. There are lots of talented people in the marketplace. There are lots of extraordinarily talented investors. There are people that have developed wonderful strategies and wonderful track records. And our our model or our modus operandi in this industry until recently has been to not include those people right? Unless they work for a big firm. And then we kind of trusted that the big firm would, you know, help them get it right. And what we've really found at NAIC over the years is that uh, some of the very best performers, they actually may have even started their career at, you know, bulge bracket or mainstream widely known firms, Uh, but they bet on themselves. They hung out their own shingle and now they're extraordinary performers. Firms like Clear Lake and Cirrus and Sycamore, uh, they were all great investors at another firm. But Amy, I think that the thing to really focus on is diversity and ESG are both important. They both need to be priorities and we need to be comfortable being a little uncomfortable. I think the way the reason people shy away from diversity is they tend to think it's about race and we've trained people or gender. We've we've trained people that these are things you don't talk about in the marketplace. They're tough. We're not accustomed to doing it. I'd much rather talk about ESG. I'd much rather talk about environmental, social governance. And and that way it's not going to get emotional and it's not going to get personal. We can't be afraid to break a few eggs on the way to this omelet. So I think both are important. I think both have a home uh, in an institution. And I think that it's incumbent upon us as leaders to make our people comfortable, not only talking about them, but ultimately living the virtues of them. Maybe I'll just jump in here. I mean, I think part of part of what we are as human beings is that it's so much easier to put labels on things. And when you put labels on things, you naturally segregate things into buckets. And not to say that that's right or wrong, but I think the core question that you're asking, Amy, about the importance of ESG and diversity is as an organization, I agree with Bob here, even though sometimes I'm unsure if we're going going to agree or not, is do you want your program to survive or do you want it to thrive, right? And it, I think what you have to do is really reflect on where are you as an organization, where are you placed in your leadership position and role as an organization, and actually going out on a limb and taking an, an opportunity or a chance to engage with whoever your stakeholders are and say, look, right now I want this idea, this curious idea to survive. So I'd like to create a bucket. I'd like to have certain professionals focused on solely, you know, I really think that diversity leads to outsized returns. But over time, if you really want your portfolio to thrive, I think at some point you're going to evolve beyond that or the journey along the way is going to change in such that that's no longer necessary because it becomes such a, um, you know, I guess, fingerprint of your DNA as a culture. So I don't know. I, I like that question of sort of, do you want to survive or do you want to thrive? And I think the continuum of where you are on that spectrum changes over time. 
And Raylan, you did just, you know, I want to press you a little bit on what you just said, where it's start conversations with stakeholders. That can be an easier thing that's said than done. It, as Bob said, it can be hard to do, you know, how do we talk about race? How do we talk about gender? So how do, what would you think about, how do we start these conversations? How, how do people listening today that want to improve diversity, but they don't really know how to bring that idea to others because it's uncomfortable. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I want to say, you know, there's an old adage that, you know, the, the orchestra was predominantly male Caucasian dominated. And they noticed that in the moment that they put, had everybody audition behind a curtain. So you couldn't see what they looked like. The moment that the diversity of that orchestra changed. And so I think part of it is that we need to, we need to do our own reflecting and have self-awareness as to what makes us uncomfortable and actually just say, like, look, I'm a woman or I'm a white woman or I'm a black man or I'm this or that. But at at another point, it's like we all, the reality is we all come from diverse experiences. And I think we tend to focus on what's different about us, even though what's at face value, it's just like, what, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, And so I think, honestly, it's just about getting more comfortable, just just being vulnerable, honestly. I mean, and that's a hard thing to do in the investment world. But the reality is, is is that vulnerability, it's that curiosity, it's that taking a chance um, that truly connects you with others and helps you identify the commonality, regardless of background, whatever, that can accelerate change and differentiating sourcing networks and returns in our portfolios. And so I think it's honestly what, you know, resonating with Bob said, it's it's getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, but showing the vulnerability if you're in a position to do so, that it's okay that you're not quite sure what to say or how to react or what to do, but you are on that journey of learning and curiosity. Bob, anything you would add to that in starting these conversations? You, you know, I, I think it's fundamentally coming to a place where you know that everyone has value uh, and you have to find it, as opposed to coming to a place where you believe only certain people have value. The leaders have value. The traditional top performers have value. The people with the most experience have value. Uh, I think if there's anything we're starting to learn from this millennial generation, as painful as it is, is that they have it right. They come to a place where they're much more comfortable with each other, Uh, even in their differences. They don't have to have it all the same. They're comfortable in their differences. And I never thought I would say this, but there's a lot that we can learn at this point from this next generation. Um, they they are not going to accept the world the way us um, millennial the way us uh, generation Xers and the the baby boomers before us did. Um, we learned we learned from our mentors to um, have success in the system, to work hard and move up in the system. They learned to change the system, and I think uh, to Raylan's point about uh, if you want to thrive in the future. We're going to all have to be a little bit more on the edge and trust our intelligence, trust our training, trust our experience to help us sort through what the opportunities are and where we should commit our dollars, um, but not fall back on a mode of thinking that causes us to believe if we just keep our finger um, where it's always been, 
right? Keep the arrow aimed where it's always been, that that's, that's the safe curve. That's the curve that's going to get us there. That the world's not going to allow for that. There are too many people globally that want to play, that have money, that have opportunities, that have entrepreneurial passions. And particularly as Americans, we're going to have to get out of a mode where New York is the financial center, where everything is denominated in dollars, where all global players want to invest in the U.S. And we're going to have to get to a place where we're comfortable finding the best talent, utilizing the best talent, investing in the best talent, and pulling others up as we go. I, I think that's really where the future lies. And that scares some people, but that which scares some people, some other people are holding their breath, waiting for the day when they simply just get to compete. And so to be on the edge, it sounds to me, you know, part of what you're you're both saying is you need to remain on the cutting edge forward thought, be part of the next generation. And part of that is new, new managers, new funds. We're not, you know, we've seen a movement away from auto re-ups with the managers we've been invested with for 25 years. And let's take a step back and look at what else is in the market, what else is out there. But part of that is getting comfortable with emerging managers. And that's managers, there's a lot of diverse managers that are on a fund one, a fund two, they're entering the market. And it's interesting because we're all having to take a look and say, okay, well, we can't, we have to underwrite these differently. We have to look at these differently. There's usually not a long track record. The team is new, but there's some amazing opportunities within that. And so I would just be interested, Raylan, maybe starting with you on how is Mercer underwriting emerging managers and what is the opportunities that you're seeing there? Well, I think to be a good investor, certainly you have to have technical skills, but to be a truly good investor, you have to bring the humanity into it. You have to be able to assess the team for what they bring to the table. How, and a lot of the emerging managers, honestly, that we see Oh my gosh, they are, I would say, first-time funds because let's just say man managers that are starting out their first time, by the way, Bob pointed to me out a couple sessions ago that every established manager, he mentioned Clear Lake, Cirrus, Sycamore, guess what? They were first-time funds at some point in time. And if you were their first-time LP, you're pretty happy right now. But the reality is, is that it takes, you know, it, it takes a lot of just recognizing that there's a lot of skills that they bring to the table that may not necessarily fit all the typical boxes that you check. And so I think for us, it's about staying frosty, about questioning. And we do a lot of that. I know, Amy, you know that of just, well, why are you rating this manager X on alignment if a significant portion of their, their net worth, even though it may not be a two and a half percent GP commitment, is going toward fueling this fund and this strategy. So I think it's about thinking differently. It's about thinking honestly, and it's less about the relative assessment and more about an absolute assessment. And so it's, I would say it's hard to, um, you know, go against the grain, but one of the things I really respect about Mercer's culture and our team broadly is that it is inclusive. I mean, you have to come prepared to debate and challenge, but people will ask, you know, they'll put you out there and ask, 
Why do you think this is a good strategy? Why is this a good team? And I think that should be regardless of any manager you're assessing. Um, but I do think when you're a first manager spinning out, it should be more emphasis on the absolute assessment and less on the relative. Yeah, and I think uh, I think again, Raylan hit the point, hit the nail on the head. Uh, we we start from a place of a reup, right? What does a reup say? A reup says that five, ten, or twenty years ago, when I underwrote this manager against a field of managers, and I made a selection and an investment in them, that they were amazing. It doesn't always speak to what that manager is doing today. And too often as a trustee, when we looked at, you know, large firm uh, performance, the large firms after Roman numeral four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, they regress to the mean. Right. So you're looking at scenarios where are you truly getting what you're paying for? You're still exposed to the same fees. You're still exposed to uh, all of the other risks that were attendant to that particular investment. But somehow over time, that manager is not performing, um, not performing as well as they used to, not even performing, frankly, uh, in the top quartile. But you continue to underwrite because, one, it's efficient, it's lower cost, um, but you're not always getting what you want. The other thing to really understand is that most investments in any firm, regardless of size, boil down to a five-person team. Right, a five-person team at the largest private equity firm in the world, or a five-person team at an emerging manager. So the real question is: Does that five-person team have the technical skills that Raylan spoke about? Do they have the investor acumen that uh, Raylan spoke about? And are they connected to the marketplace in a way that gives them an advantage? Right. So as you look at each of those things. It's not fair to compare a 30-person emerging manager to a 3,000-person Wall Street behemoth when, in fact, it's five people on both sides identifying the opportunity, pitching it to a, uh, their investment committee, and cutting the trade. And another thing I found that has been really helpful is, you know, there's this lack of track record, which which hinders so many. But it's been interesting because if you take the time, you can really piece together somebody's track record through reference calls, through just discussions. What what investments were they part of? Um, you know, all those things. And so just taking that extra time, we found at Mercer also pays off in understanding managers. So speaking of terms and market terms, Bob, you shared a very interesting story with me that I would love for you to share again on how our standard Two and twenty fee structure came about today. You know, it uh, it's a it's a really fun story, Amy, and it was one that I heard uh, George Roberts of KKR say firsthand, um, and it, it it boils down to um, he and his cousin Henry Kravitz were in a car uh, waiting outside before meeting with an LP. And they were going through their key pitch points. They were going through who was going to say what. And then they said, you know, they mentioned to us that they're going to want to talk about fees. What's this going to cost? You know, this private equity model is a new thing. And um, one said to the other, what do you think we should charge them? He said, well, I don't know. I took a look at our budget and I took a look at, uh, you know, what it's going to cost us. And uh, I'm thinking maybe 2% of their commitment would be about right. If we can get that, that would be great. And uh, well, okay, all right, that keeps us in business. But what what on what should we get on the the upside? Well, you know, look, if we double the amount of money, which is what we're trying to do here over a five to seven year period, maybe maybe they'll give us twenty percent. 
And so without it being as cliche as it is today, they came up with two and 20, two cousins sitting in a car outside of an institutional investor. That story that when when I heard George tell that story, it was fascinating because every conversation as an institutional investor and every conversation I've had as a manager really centers around this notion of two and 20. So we've built two and 20 up to be this heavily researched, overly analyzed uh, concept when in fact it was a swag. It was the back of the envelope thing. And so many things in the industry come come about like that. And over time, they grow to be accepted. And I think I, I told this story to you originally, Amy, because I wonder how many other things are out there that we think are just this monumental grand um, uh, hurdle that have to be assessed and dealt with and addressed when, in fact, we had to start someplace. And so they gave us a place to start. And we haven't moved in 40 plus years of the private equity industry. We haven't moved that far away from it on on the overall fees. So, Bob, you're in the back of that limo. What is your new industry standard? So my industry standard would be uh, something called the Rooney Rule. Uh, And the Rooney Rule uh, was an adaptation from the Pittsburgh Steelers, Art Rooney, who, when hiring uh, coaches said, we need to have diverse coaches at the table. And from a football standpoint, they're an amazing organization because the Pittsburgh Steelers are one of the original NFL teams. And to date, they've only had four coaches. And my beloved Washington football team has had close to 17, right? And they're both about the same age. So I believe that um, uh, requiring diversity for any search whether it's searching for your investment team, whether it's searching for your IR people, whether it's searching for your executive assistants, or whether it's searching for new managers, uh, that uh, a diverse professional minimally, one, should be at the table and included in the search. Bob, I think you're you're absolutely right in that. And I was thinking if we reimagine our, you know, the investment approval process, Right now, you look at an investment based on its own merit. And there's, I think what would be what we've really been looking at just from a team standpoint is as we're bringing in members of our team growing our platform, we want colleagues from diverse backgrounds. It makes better, you know, it makes for a better equation in terms of what we deliver for clients. But it would be awesome too if you said, okay, you're bringing this one investment opportunity, but show me three, four others, and there needs to be diverse, different managers included. And tell us how this opportunity, the re-up or the whatever it is, stacks up against something else. And so it's something that's, you know, um, making people accountable for actually looking at what else is out there as opposed to falling back on what they know. And you also had um, an idea, which I really liked, and that was I think you mentioned something about every year sort of looking at bottom 10% performers and and making a decision and saying, well, who did we pass on? How have they performed? But actually making a very um, thoughtful process around just like we manage out poor performers on the team, why would you not do the same thing in your investment portfolio and give others an opportunity? So I don't know, those are a couple of thoughts and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of room to grow. And maybe, you know, when I'm in Virginia, Bob, we can take a limo and come up with, you know, our own uh, our own ideas that will transform future history. 
the world according to a couple of Richmonders. I love it. We can do that. <laughs> well, we are wrapping up on time. So my final question in a few words to each of you. Today's podcast, the title is Curiosity Versus Conviction. What does this mean to you? And how can we get more investors to move from the curiosity stage to the conviction stage? Bob, I'll start with you. You know, I've been waiting for a long time for a consulting firm that has wanted to lead in this space. Um, Too often, the critics will say that consultants kind of have a herd or a pack mentality and they want to stay clustered together. Uh, Through my conversations with Mercer, um, another Richmonder, um, Brad Young, and some of your other colleagues, um, I'm just excited that Mercer is taking this bold step. Um, I I can't say that five years ago or or longer than that, I I would have told you that any consulting firm would be willing to take a bold step around diversity. But I think um, Mercer's bravery and uh, their conviction towards diversity uh, is going to serve them and their clients very well. And so I'm optimistic that, um, you know, this is uh, more of a conviction. You guys are investing in firm resources and have very senior people talking about this now, talking publicly as well as internally. So I think Mercer is moving towards conviction and I'm proud of uh, what you guys are doing and happy to be aligned with you in that effort. I would just say show Let's show the industry that what's possible is attainable, that what can survive can thrive, that curiosity does lead to conviction and action. And, you know, Amy, you've been at the forefront chairing the investment committee of LEAP. You know, we've seen the quality of opportunities um, firsthand of the stories, the background, the, the unique investment strategies The fact that, you know, what would be awesome is because we invest across stages of managers, and I hear your point, I wanted to come in, Bob, when you said, you know, typically as managers, you re-up, they regress to the mean. I don't think that the causality is because you've been around and you get bigger that ultimately you regress to the mean. I I would like to disprove that. Mm -hmm. I think when managers digress to the mean as they continue to succeed, it's usually because of the team. It's usually because of ego. It's usually because of breakdown and partnership economics and things like that. And I would say that the managers that I've met with, that Amy's met with, the team's met with, my goodness, they are so thoughtful about really thinking through what it means to be, how to construct a partnership. It's not, here's our great strategy, let's go raise a bunch of capital, but how are we going to construct our partnership to thrive in the long term? And that's something that honestly is quite unique that I'm seeing much more in the diverse manager set because they really want to thrive and they want to succeed and show others the value that they bring. So that would be my hope is that we're going to show them that what's attainable truly is um, actionable and to bring the realm of possibility into the realm of mainstream reality. That is a great note to wrap on. Thank you again so much to Bob and Raylan for joining me today. And of course, thank you to all of you, our listeners. If you'd like to learn more about what we've discussed today and how to approach implementing a DEI strategy into your portfolio, please contact us at ctci at mercer.com. Thank you all so much. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. 
It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Reference to the 240 dedicated professionals in Mercer's Alternatives team is forecasted to be by year-end 2021. Current number of professionals as of the 1st of September 2021 is 204. 17 trillion of expected assets in alternatives by 2025 is according to a report by Prequin as of the 4th of November 2020. The 1-3% to range of assets under management in majority diverse owned firms is according to the 2018 Diverse Asset Management Assessment by Bella Research and Knight Foundation, January 2019. The term underwriting used in this video is defined as performing due diligence.